Now from the Milken Institute, responding to COVID-19, conversations with Mike Milken. There is an information collection problem from the counties, which is where most of the data lives. We've got a team that literally goes through both by hand and using technology. It's one of the things that we're very proud of is being able to help CDC with some of that. That's former Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer. When he funded his nonprofit venture, usafacts.org, three years ago to help Americans better understand their country, he had no idea how useful his own government would find his data. He spoke recently with Milken Institute and Faster Cures Chairman Mike Milken. Steve, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Mike. Pleasure to be here. We have this commonality of focus on facts. What are the facts to make a decision on? And six years ago, you created USA Facts. What is USA Facts for our listeners? And why did you feel the need to create it? USA Facts is an initiative I started, usafacts.org, if people want to check it out. And it was built on the notion that says it's very hard to understand the government by the numbers, by government's own data. How much revenue comes in and who's paying it? How is the money spent on various expense categories? And what kind of outcomes does government get since obviously profit is not the target of government? And my wife had asked me a few questions in the context of our philanthropy in terms of spending by government. I found it very hard to find. And I thought, how would I do this if this was a business I was competing with at Microsoft, answer, I would have looked up their SEC filed 10K report. Very factual, no exaggeration, built on real numbers, no forecast, just the history of what's happened. And in a world of alternate facts and fake news, the notion of turning to third-party data, which always is subject to suspicion, Let's look at the government's own data, which the government should be using to make decisions about how to run itself. I also believe we have really good professional people and the statistical agencies in the government. And the question was, how do you assemble that data in what I would refer to like a 10K, comprehensible, comprehensive view of what was going on? Steve, I spent a lifetime reading 10Ks. And as you know, I might be one of the few people that read your 10K cover to cover, but you know it a lot better than I. What have you learned over the years in gathering these facts and producing these 10Ks on the U.S. government? Government data is not very current. It's not very recent. We have numbers that go back to 2017 in our 2020 10K, which is just coming out because government, particularly state and local government, because we look at this as an integrated problem because of the way the federal government transfers money to the states, the data is just not very recent. If you really want to, for example, study the impact of the Affordable Care Act, you're looking at very old data. So I'll underscore that as a place to start. In terms of things that have been surprising to me, while I guess I had a sense of how much government spend on healthcare, the notion that it spends 50%, just about of all healthcare dollars in the United States, between Medicare, Medicaid, veterans, government employee, retirement, health benefits, that really grabbed my attention since healthcare has been an exploding cost. And obviously healthcare is very much in the news right now. 
I'll just give you one example. The hospital beds per population has gone down from 6.2, and I won't remember the exact year, till about 2.9 this year. And some people will say, aha, that's the problem with the coronavirus. Others will say, our medical costs are exploding in a way the government and citizens can't afford. And so maybe the right solution would have been to have a plan on how to create temporary beds as opposed to be running around a little bit like chickens with our heads cut off right now. I'll give you another example. We have the PPP program under the stimulus coming out to support smaller businesses. If you were to say, what is the highest, the most jobs in any small business sector? Number one is actually health and social service people who are working with people who are struggling and or small doctor's offices, it's almost 9 million jobs. 9 million jobs is about 6% of all the jobs in the United States. And yet these small businesses are the least well-equipped to apply for PPP based upon prior relationships with banks. So I'm just picking a few things, Mike, to, to talk about. The data is quite rich, even though a lot of it is, unfortunately, not very current. So Steve, the challenges that you've found gathering data, understanding government, do you see these challenges carrying over to the COVID-19 attempt to analyze that data? Very much so. Part of the problem, Mike, is just the systems approach, the standardization of information, the building of world-class IT systems, and even the way government focuses in on its job. Is it job to build programs or is its job to think about societal problems and target its actions, money, regulatory work against a certain set of changes it wants to make in government. The data systems are not built to do the latter. They're built to issue checks and other things which are non-decision making. So in this COVID world, yeah, very much so. Should somebody have thought through, okay, if there is a pandemic, if there is a smaller level scare like an Ebola scare, what are the systems we need to collect that data? And not only publish to the citizens, but for government itself to use that in real time. We've built a database of data about what's going on with the COVID-19 epidemic by literally crawling through, thank God, much of it technological, reports that live at the county level and sucking them up and building a database which we present, but which we also make available to others. At our Faster Cures Center, we interact with FDA, NIH, all these different government agencies and CDC. And a number of years ago, we had taken a group to open the CDC to the public for one night and one day for the first time. Now, we are hearing rumors I think from some of our people that interact with the CDC, that in, instead of you using their data, they're using your data. Is there any truth to that? Yeah, absolutely there is. And we have great respect for the CDC, but there is an information collection problem from the counties, which is where most of the data lives. We've got a team that literally goes through both by hand and using technology to assemble that data because the county data is the most recent and we provide that database to CDC and we we're somewhat surprised that 
it was a database they wanted to use. It's an outcome of the data collection process in government in the country. Yeah, it's one of the things I'd say we're very proud of is being able to help CDC with some of that. Steve, if you were assigned the job to get the economy going again, how would you leverage the data that you've been interacting with to get our economy going again and getting people back to work? I'm not going to pretend to be an expert, Mike, on how to do this, but there are three aspects that I think we need to look at. Number one, we do need to look at families and how to put families in a position where they can spend money. Because if people have no money to spend, we could talk about businesses reopening, but we have to have a supply and demand for commerce, if you will. In this country, 60% of the families earn less than $66,000 a year. So these $1,200 checks plus appropriate increases for presence of children in the home are highly, highly relevant to restarting the economy. These unemployment checks are highly relevant to restarting the economy. If you look at reopening businesses, then you have to say, hmm, this PPP concept I actually think is pretty good, but you have to say which businesses are really gonna drive people coming back into the workforce. I talked to you about the fact that there's over 9 million jobs in healthcare and social assistance in small businesses. 9 million, 9 million. And yet most of what people talk about is food service and retail trade, which are also big, but somewhat lower. They all take a little bit different. So I think being more targeted and focused in the application of the PPP money will be a very important part of this because certain parts of the economy won't come back. I think one of the questions that we need to think about that you have addressed is what are the long-term economic and social changes do you see post this crisis? Let me take that from just a slightly different angle. As somebody who has ran a big technology company in Microsoft and somebody who still very much tracks what's going on in technology, I think this crisis will cause many organizations to really think about how they allow everything they do and everything their customers do to be done wherever possible remotely, whether it's government making it easier for people to sign up for government benefits, which can be really a problem. One of the issues right now is you don't get your $1,200 check very quickly, Mike, from the government if you are unbanked, of which there are close to 10 million people, a little less than that, who are unbanked in the country? Will people then push to get themselves banked? Will there be a push, not only by the citizens, but on corporations to better serve all the population for, let me just refer to it as remote everything? So as you think about changes and social changes, individual interaction, you recently purchased one of the major arenas in Los Angeles called The Forum, which many years ago introduced Showtime to the world with Magic Johnson and has been an entertainment venue. You're building a high-tech, one of the more exciting venues in Los Angeles today. I'm sure you're thinking of, and your team's thinking, what would it take for people to feel comfortable attending a concert there, or other events in these arenas that you're building? I'm afraid it's possible from a public health perspective, these kinds of live entertainment venues will be some of the 
later to reopen, at least a concert venue. I think it's a lot harder maybe even than doing, say, a basketball game, which as owner of the LA Clippers, I know the league, the NBA is working hard on because you could stage your broadcast experience. But in a sense, I think we're going to think about this as a TSA-like problem. There's become a crisis from what is going on. And the question is, how do you test slash check people before they are admitted to the experience. We're certainly not in a position right now to, quote, require people to prove that they've been tested. But as testing capacity increases, as attestation through thermometer checks increases, putting in the security and checking parameters, much as we had to do some of that TSA, I think could be at least part of the solution to getting these live event venues like the forum open again. Your home state, Washington, was really maybe the first state to get hit with the coronavirus. Maybe the very first patients that were treated were right there in Everett, Washington, right next to Seattle. What was your initial reaction to when this was occurring in your state as opposed to other states where it really occurred later? Although there are experts like my old colleague, Bill Gates, who have this in their mind, it's hard to fathom when you hear about the first cases. So I'd say there was a lot of sadness about the deaths that were happening in this facility in which older people inhabited. A lot of sadness, but not as much of a, wow, where does this go next? We've gotten involved with the University of Washington, which has done over 50% of all the testing in this state. And thank God institutions like that mobilized very quickly, which means our states also had a chance to hit, if you will, the flattening of the curve earlier than other states. So I think our state prepared well, but from an emotional standpoint, I would say it was more sadness about what was happening to individuals than fear of all this thing could become. Steve, you and your family have been very active philanthropically. It appears in some ways that you've gone in one direction. Other family members have gone in another direction. Have you coordinated your efforts to deal with this coronavirus and the effects? We are members of a philanthropic funding collaborative that focuses in on kids and families in need called Blue Meridian. That is a joint effort with a number of other partners. Think of it, if you will, the same way as you might an investment fund. And then we've done a lot of funding ourselves, both nationally as well as in uh, sort of our home areas, LA, where we have the Clipper basketball team, Seattle, where we live, and Detroit, where I grew up. There are so many organizations in need, and many of them aren't yet fully taking advantage of and aware of what's out there. Philanthropy can fill in holes, Mike, but philanthropy cannot solve everything. So the University of Washington needs testing money to get started before they can get state money. We've jumped in. There's a shortage right now of swabs in order to do testing. Some doctor finds a supply chain. Again, government can't move in. We've helped provide some money because we think testing is so important. There are a number of opportunities to fund collaborative efforts. We put money into Mayor's Fund, for example, in Los Angeles. There are food banks. We've been involved in food security programs up here. I'm not going to call it hit and miss. But I am going to say everybody's scrambling. Everybody wants to make a difference. 
Not everybody agrees on the best way. We certainly are not trying to start new programs. We're trying to find initiatives that have a little bit of momentum and then feed those to the best we can. One of the things people don't fully realize is that philanthropy is about 3% of medical research. But as you pointed out, it's really the venture funding and it gets things going that are then backed by NIH and other government agencies. And so even if you're a small part, it makes a big difference. And the other thing I've seen that you focused on is philanthropy is not just money. It's also volunteerism. And if you calculated relative salaries, people volunteering to help using their skill set. If you monetize that, it far exceeds the dollars given so everyone can help. Is there a way that you believe technology or even thinking about Microsoft, etc., Steve, could play a larger role if people want to give of their time, their analysis, their knowledge in a world of social distancing? There are a lot of ways to volunteer. There are ways to volunteer in which some software gets written. Certainly, if you have an automated accounting system, we've been talking to the people in Intuit, they make it much easier to apply for PPP loans, for tracking what you need to track in order to get that done. I'll give you another example. People who are unbanked, can you help people who are unbanked quickly get banked in order to receive their checks without running afoul of many of the banking regulations. It's another opportunity to help, and there are not-for-profits working on the problem. So you can pick a set of these kinds of things where people, accountants in the case of QuickBooks, programmers can certainly make a difference, bankers can certainly make a difference. There's a broad swath of people who have volunteer opportunities, even being remote. So let's get a little closer to home, Steve. One of my sons just happened to be coming to Seattle at about the right time. So I started with him, fiance, and my wife. One son decided to stay with his roommates in San Francisco, where I think he's doing a pretty good job on social distancing, although he's 20-something. That's a community that I think people have worried a little about. My other son was actually studying on term abroad from University of Michigan in Australia. He had to come back. That was the order from the University of Michigan. We could have quarantined him, I guess, when he came back. We chose to let him in the house and take that risk. But he is now sitting in the state of Washington, taking classes in Australia for credit in Michigan. There's an irony to all of that, in my opinion. Hopefully that all works out. And we find he has fear. He has fear that schools won't be open in the fall. That may or may not be the case. I'm in a risk group over 60 years old. I have a certain set of fears about what might happen. Nobody's panicked. And yet, even for us, which is a family of you know a lot of privilege, a lot of good fortune in our lives, things to worry about. Steve, I want to thank you for your time today, but I also particularly want to thank you for you and your entire family's commitment to the well-being, not just during the coronavirus, but to the well-being of the country and the world. So thank you again. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for the friendship and interest, and I'll look forward to seeing you soon. 
Find more episodes on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or MilkenInstitute.org slash podcast, where you'll also find the latest COVID-19 updates. Until next time, stay safe and healthy.